HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting on the Heritage Radio Network live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. On the phone with me today, we're going to be talking about hospital procurement and we're discussing this with uh, Dr. Robert Gould. Dr. Gould um, in 2012 was appointed to be the Associate Adjunct Professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences sinuses at the UCSF School of Medicine to serve as the Director of Health Professional Outreach and Education for their program on reproductive health and the environment. But since, and this is why we're talking to him, it's since 1989, he has been president of the San Francisco Bay Area Chapter for Physicians for Social Responsibility. And we've all heard of that fantastic organization. In 2003, he was the president of the National PSR, and it will serve again in this capacity in 2014. Um, since 1986, Bob has been an active in the Peace Caucus of the American Public Health Association, for which he has been the chairperson for numerous years and has been awarded numerous prizes and awards for his work there. <clears throat> in addition to speaking and publishing extensively on the clinician's role in environmental and public health advocacy, Bob is an expert on the environmental and public health impacts of nuclear weapons. We're going to have to do a show about that, Bob, too. Um, and <laughs> nuclear terrorism in war and Public Health, uh, which was published in 2008, Terrorism and Public Health, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. And believe me, Dr. Gould has many more accomplishments under his belt, really too numerous to enumerate here, because otherwise I wouldn't have time for any questions. As it is, I'm already feeling pressured. Um, So, Bob, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you about the program that um, Physicians for Social Responsibility has been implementing in the hospital food system out in the Bay Area. So tell us about it. And... um, um, and how did you guys get going on this? Well, thanks, Katie. It's a real pleasure to be on the uh, program. Well, you know, uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility, beyond our central focus on nuclear weapons that dates from the 1960s, um, 
began in the early 1990s to extend our overall organizational focus uh, beyond the environmental and public health impacts of nuclear weapons, which are still with us, unfortunately, to the other uh, broad environmental health issues such as uh, global warming, uh, the impacts of environmental toxicants and pollution, that sort of stuff that will obviously familiar issues for the right. listeners. And as part of that work, we have, uh, particularly over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, looked on our own sectors, uh, the hospital systems we uh, work in, as uh, not only places where we hope to heal people, but also, unfortunately, just because of the way they've been designed uh, historically, have actually uh, contributed to a great deal of pollution, a great deal of energy use in terms of our concerns about bringing energy down. And we have been, uh, really the start of this has been, certainly for the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of PSR and many other chapters, working with organizations uh, like the Coalition Healthcare Without Harm, Practice Green Health, and others to, A, reduce the environmental contributions of our own sector. Uh, right. Talking about the hospital sector, you know, contributing something like, uh, you know, the second largest energy use in terms of industrial sectors. And we moved beyond campaigns that eliminated sources of dioxin from incinerating uh, medical waste uh, to reduce the amounts of uh, chemical uh, pollution, such as mercury emanating from hospitals to move more to a proactive way of, while we continue those efforts to reduce uh, pollution, to actually make our institutions models for uh, dealing with uh, climate change and providing a more healthy overall environment for our patients, workers, and uh, communities. And, uh, you know, I, to really frame this, there's a, an ongoing hospital effort now uh, representing a consortium of, of hospitals such as Kaiser Hospital, which which I work with, for right. thirty years as a pathologist, uh, formerly Catholic Healthcare West, now Dignity Health, uh, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, and other leading institutions, to realize that as an as an industry, if organizations such as this put down, you know, the, the usual sort of competing with each other, to at least in these larger environmental issues begin to band together and share best practices, et cetera, they could provide a basis for doing all these things, both, uh, you know, changing our hospital practices to conform with our environmental health needs and to promote better health for our communities. And this has really been embraced in a, a growing area, which is known as the Healthier Hospitals Initiative, mm-hmm. within which are healthy food and uh, hospital care in healthcare, excuse me, healthy food and healthcare uh, work uh, really uh, resides. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm That's sorry. fascinating I because I mean, I think everybody it. knows that that I mean, I'm because I tend to focus on food and food policy on this show. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna really um, put your feet to the fire about the food mm-hmm. thing sure. because because uh, you know I think everybody can agree that um, most hospital stays are characterized by how um, unappetizing. I mean, I won't even go further than that. Unappetizing the food is, um, and, and and also how much waste there is, and 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 the fact that the food. Um, you know, it, it, it seems it's like the worst kind of cafeteria food that you remember from the 1950s and sure. 60s, kind of. And so what you guys have been doing is, I mean, among other things, is you have started to implement um, new procurement uh, 
policies that allow you to purchase from uh, more local far- farmers. And I'm not saying that local is always best, but still it's, it supports the local community. And then more importantly, antibiotic-free meat. And um, because we're a little bit pressed for time, I want to talk about that particularly. So when you guys decided to make that um, an aspect of your sort of ongoing food system, um Tell me how you made that work in terms of costs, because I think most people think of, you know, antibiotic-free or organic meat or all-natural, whatever you want to call it, but it's particularly antibiotic-free, as much more expensive, because it does take the farmer longer, of course, to raise the animal to market weight, and um, and harder to find in large quantities. And you guys, obviously, are going to use large quantities. So how did you figure that out as part of your model? Well... You know, getting back to you know what I was framing with the, with the Healthier Hospitals mm-hmm. Initiative and the sort of uh, food teams that we've had in place uh, here in California. These are leadership teams which involve chefs, food service directors, and other key administrative people uh, on in hospital systems like UCSF and uh, also involving uh, clinical support. We begin by having this type of uh, coordination. Uh, and now we have, uh, you know, major leadership teams, for example, in San Diego, L.A., and the San Francisco Bay Area, mm-hmm. to begin to develop and, and influence the group purchasing contracts that right. are integral to, uh, to, change, to turning this around. And we realize that individual efforts, uh, even, you know, one committed hospital is not enough, which is why we have to work within the larger system to leverage demand, not only on food, but energy and the, and the sure. sort of materials that, that we get. So in the case of antibiotics, we know, you know, this is one of those things, well, yes, it's true, to, uh, to bring in food that's antibiotic-free is going to be a little more expensive given the way things are set up in our country. And, and mm-hmm. the problem is, uh, a problem is that food, uh, bad food, uh, like the type that uh, is in normally served in hospital systems that are more focused on does the patient have the right balance of sodium and, you know, Mm -hmm. other ions that they're going to do well in a post-surgical setting, there is growing recognition of the need not only to have healthy foods that are antibiotic-free, but also that are more tasty, that help people in their overall sense of wellness and getting better, getting out of the hospital of this matter. So to be very specific about your question about the antibiotics, we now know that this is a major issue in our uh, country and the world because the fact that anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of antibiotics are used in, uh, you know, uh, poultry and livestock uh, production uh, in the in the United States, as opposed to for patient care, and as a, uh, that it's used in that sector, and it's not really used to treat sick animals. It's it's really basically to allow them to thrive or to prevent infection, because we've already set up the situation whereby they're penned in as close as they can, uh, pack them, and uh, this leads in all of these animals to uh, development of diseases, and then the use of these antibiotics. And we face, as a major public health problem in our country, the fact that uh, these, uh, the, this overuse of antibiotics leads to the, uh, infections with things like methicillin-resistant staph aureus and campylobacter uh, in, uh, organisms 
that themselves have a significant uh, toll on on patients in, in our country. I'm going to ask you. So I'm, I'm going to stop well, you for one second. Is that we have to compare what mm-hmm. the slightly increased cost per pound of that chicken would be with what we would save just on the economic side mm-hmm. from uh, the not having to you know prevent and treat antibiotic infection. So, for example, the food director. In Fletcher Allen, Vermont, which has instituted one of these programs for sourcing antibiotic meat, would say that you know that the annual seventy-five thousand to eighty thousand increase to serve a hundred percent antibiotic-free meat products in their facilities, so that is an increased price, is about the cost of treating just one patient with a methicillin-resistant Staph aureus infection. So that's really the trade-offs that we have to be looking at, Mm -hmm. even at the economic side, let alone the morbidity and mortality of these terrible, sure. terrible infections. Well, I think that um, I'm, I'm going to roll you back for just a second there because I want that, that was one of the questions I had is, do you actually see um, more antibiotic-resistant infections coming through hospitals? And I'm, I mean, besides MRSA, everybody's heard about MRSA. Um, are you seeing more of other types of antibiotic-resistant infections that are emanating from, say, salmonella, because there are so many now, there are so many antibiotic-resistant strains of that, of Campylobacter and E. coli. Do you see that as yeah, a well, clinician? A I mean, I don't have the precise numbers right at the right. tip of my tongue at the moment, well, but fine. we are seeing significant increases in mm-hmm. all of these infections uh, uh, throughout the country. And we, and at the same time, we recognize this has been well publicized not only in the medical journals, but also within, you know, New York Times and elsewhere. Oh, sure. And here on this program. You know, we're down (laughs) to like, in many cases, like maybe one, you know, super antibiotic to treat people. And if we, if we just play this out in terms of the, the rapid development of antibiotic resistant, uh, species of bacteria, to how long it takes to put a new antibiotic that's really useful for people online, we're, most people recognize we're losing this race. And this is right. why major health organizations such as the American Medical Association, American Public Health Association, and American Nurses Association, I can go on and on, uh, who have registered that we need to stop these types of practices and uh, because our very health is uh, threatened. And, and so you have, on the one hand, major voices, people who see this problem uh, surfacing within mm-hmm. the health community, basically pitted against a food industry and a pharmaceutical industry that wants to continue these types of practices. It's very lucrative uh, yeah. when 70% of the antibiotic market is going into these types of practices. I have to say that the meat industry would dispute you on that figure, but... Um... <laughs> We'll leave that for another for another segment. Um, I think it is really interesting that the medical community is finally kind of waking up because I'll be honest with you, I've had, I mean, as over the course of the year, you know, one goes to one's doctor for one thing or another. And as it happens, I broke my wrist this year. I'll just tell you a quick anecdote here. And so I asked my, um, my doctor, you know, my, my, uh, my orthopedic, uh, doctor how he felt about this problem. And he literally said to me, I don't care and nothing, we can't do anything about it anyway. Well, it's unfortunate that that type of thinking is still there. Um, yeah, I mean, because, I often you know, wonder. It's really at variance with an evolving sense of these things. And I, I, could, I could speak to my own work within um, California Medical Association, where I've you know, served as a delegate with the Santa Clara County right. Medical Association, and we've worked you know, on many of the issues that I addressed up front. 
on policy to sort of bring, uh, you know, a medical practice in line with basic public health. I mean, we have to remember that, you know, over a century ago, um, the, the professions of public health and medical practice were divided, uh, you know, to, to specialize yes. on one part or the other of that type of problem. And one of the results has been, and I, I could certainly testify in experience, uh, from my own experience, that unfortunately there are numbers of individuals in the medical profession who aren't thinking within a, a larger primary prevention public health perspective. <laughs> and our work in the medical associations in many ways has been to restore that balance and, mm-hmm. and, and that perspective. And we have found, uh, certainly within the California Medical Association and, and, and likewise others, that when these things are explained and you're presenting the data, people get it and understand it and support it. So, you know, uh, uh, just within the last five years, the California Medical Association supported an extremely progressive, in, in my view, food policy that deals with all of these things. No antibiotics, it should be organic, it should mm-hmm. respect fair labor, ethical practices, I mean, a whole range of these things. And it went up to the AMA and got basically adopted uh, pretty extent uh, in that. So it's really a matter, this is where our role in PSR and, and you know, our colleagues and the hospital systems now have the credibility, if, if you will, from the, may, uh, the rest of our colleagues within uh, the medical community to champion these efforts and to move them forward. And the people like Lucia Serra and uh, right. Kendrick Klein and uh, Sapna Thadahill who work with our chapter uh, in getting this out at the hospital, they've done incredible work to create the systems in place which we, uh, you know, on, on the health professional side, mm-hmm. then are trying to coordinate with green teams and this whole array of hospital-based practices to raise awareness and change the practices. That's fantastic. Um, Bob, we're going to take a short uh, sponsor break. Um, so listeners, please stay tuned, and uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Robert Gould, who is the uh, San Francisco Bay uh, president of the Chapter 4 Physicians for Social Responsibility. We'll be back in just a second. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And we're talking today with uh, Dr. Robert Gould, who is the San Francisco Bay Chapter Head of Physicians for Social Responsibility and a former national president of the same organization. And we're discussing the way hospitals are starting to change their models to um, f- include, uh, among other things, better food and better contract purchasing for their hospitals, as well as an array of other, as we're learning now, an array of other environmentally friendly um, policy changes. So Bob, um, I want to go back to the food system because um, it's it's. I think in a lot of cases, hospitals, much like public schools, have probably some infrastructural and staff training challenges in terms of changing the way you you buy foods. So um, I don't know if this is true, but I'm guessing that a lot of 
you know, some of the foods when they, in sort of the old fashioned model of purchasing, um, were prepared foods. So you just opened a can or, or, or a bag and threw things onto a sheet pan, just like they do in public schools. Is that accurate? And do you find that there is a problem in, in kind of rolling that practice back and getting into more sort of natural based cooking? Cause I know when I read that article that you sent me, um, about Lucia Sayre, who you, uh, re- referred to earlier in the program, um, that she talked about, um, changing up some of the buying practices so that you weren't spending as much money on meat. You're spending more money on, on, uh, vegetarian cooking and, um, you know, legumes and stuff like that, that, that provides that protein blast without the same, uh, calorie issues or mm-hmm. whatever. So how do you deal with those infrastructural problems or do you not have them in a hospital setting? Oh, God, of course we have them. I mean, (laughs) you know, you're trying to turn around a ship that's been moving in a certain way with that type of perspective. So that that indeed is a challenge. How do we uh, change the culture? So let's say you have a policy in place, you have administration that's supportive that we're trying to do through the Healthier Hospitals Initiative, and then you're working with you know, practices and locked-in contracts. So you have to, you know, look at each of those uh, in turn. So, yeah, you know, there's uh, our folks uh, with their working with the, the food service directors uh, Directors have worked uh, to change those cultures. So it's uh, you to move it away from, you know, just dump some frozen food in a pan and serve it up. So, you know, we have models, uh, just like the UC San Francisco model, where uh, Jack Henderson, the food service director, has been able to turn things around, and patients and, and, and folks in the cafeteria are now loving the food, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very attractive to them. You know, many of the hospitals recognize that at that level of making their hospitals more attractive, and uh, it's all works better for them anywhere from PR to uh, through content. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say, you I, know, I... we try to. It, there are a lot of different things that are that are suited to the local communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in in our in California, for example, uh, changing the culture is a multi-pronged uh, strategy. We do have an agricultural base where part of the work of our teams is to identify where local sourcing, where organic could. Uh, could come into the the hospital uh, stream and and again uh, this is the coordination with large hospital systems to be able to bring that into the into the contract but you know that still remains uh, relatively speaking and certainly na- nationwide uh, a, a minority of of the the type of food that you can bring in although we always try to optimize that mm-hmm. the other thing has been the ongoing negotiations uh, working at a national level with uh, organizations such as U.S. Foods and Cisco and food service contractor companies like Aramark and Sodexo, basically to begin to educate them about the changes that uh, we understand the sector wants to make around the food and beverages they purchase. And so given that we're in a system where we're dealing with group purchasing contracts, the way, the general way we're going about this is to sort of, you know, uh, work with the large purchasers to, as the contracts come up for renewal, mm-hmm. to change the mix of the things that we're asking for. And, and to the degree that we can get more hospitals involved with healthier hospitals initiatives and that sort of thing, we bring more of a demand into play to change those very contracts. So that's the way we're going. I mean, it's slow progress. And then it's a matter of, uh, you know, as we bring the new products in and, the new, and uh, you know, these consciousness like 
you know, a meatless Monday. You know, you have to go slow in some places because the patient expectations heretofore have been, you know, I expect go and get my hamburger and the story. Right. And we're trying to promote it. I mean, you know, when I worked in Kaiser, I mean, we, uh, you know, over the last number of years, there's lots of very, you know, really aesthetically pleasing placards and educational devices that when folks come into the cafeteria, they're encouraged, and it's it's all part of that type of health promotion. So there are no easy answers, you know, no. to change all this acculturated practices uh, around food in our country, but I think our teams and the people working on it have been very thoughtful about addressing all of these, uh, you know, major points of controlling the problem. Let me ask you this, because we're going to have to wrap it up in just a couple of minutes. How much mm-hmm. money are we talking about? Because we didn't get to that in the beginning. And I, what, what kind of, when you talk about group purchasing contracts, how much does it cost? Like, say, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you're, do, you're you know, running these programs with, say, six or seven hospitals. What is that sort of cumulative buying practice what kind of leverage, financial leverage, do you have in terms of encouraging broadline distributors like Cisco and U.S. Foods to, um, you know, look for alternative sources and find actually find um, producers who can produce a big enough volume to meet your needs? Are we, you know, billions of dollars, millions of dollars? I think well, I read somewhere I, I, it was like thirteen billion top, dollars, millions of, millions of dollars, uh, multi millions of dollars ultimately. But you know, honestly, Katie, I, I don't have that mm-hmm. particular figure. I, I just know. I'll more get Lucia to do that. <laughs> how we've um, moved forward. I mean, that is more the province of, uh, unfortunately, you know. Uh, I don't have Lucia at my side. Or right. Disaster. No, I'm going to get her on to do the actual point. number but crunching. You know what I yeah. would suggest, and a, and a lot of answers for patients, uh, patients, or sorry for the listeners <laughs> of, 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 of this uh, broadcast, are available on a number of our websites. So mm-hmm. much more detail in the records, how many hospitals signed up, what the numbers are. That uh, I apologize for not having right oh, that's okay. my tongue here. Um, like, for example, healthy food and health care, just all one put together word dot mm-hmm. org is uh, the information about all of this type of stuff and if you want the larger framing on uh, the overall healthier hospitals initiative with this dovetails with our climate efforts and chemical reduction efforts that's healthier hospitals again mm-hmm. all one word dot org and of course you could look up uh, our website sure. SF org as well. But all the information is available there. That's great. And thank you for doing that because, of course, that's usually how I wrap up my show is to ask you to give me a bunch of websites for people. But I have one more question and then mm-hmm. we will say goodbye. And then we will definitely have Lucia on in September because I want I do want to get those figures. I think there's a really interesting um, aspect of this whole um, equation here. But do you see, I mean, are you able to track... Uh, better patient outcomes from better food in the hospitals that have adopted this model. In other words, when people are recovering from surgery or having a baby or an ill, you know, serious illness, do you actually see a better patient outcome, and do you see less waste? Well, you know, uh, we, we we definitely have patient surveys that have been uh, positive about mm-hmm. the food, but. It's really uh, measuring actual health outcomes and being able to compare, you know, this food versus that food within a complicated setting. Uh-huh. What type of patient is it? What type of surgery have they had? That's uh, extremely challenging, and no one is is really tracking that. We're certainly not tracking that. Let mm-hmm. alone, I know it's 
it'd be difficult to even set up the hospital system. So a lot of this, uh, at this point, uh, we're relying on those sort of surveys of satisfaction. But right. we're talking about you know patients who are in a hospital and then are going out into their community have lifelong practices of certain type of uh, eating. We recognize that uh, our intervention in the hospital can be a positive one uh, to provide different choices, uh, different knowledge about food that patients could have right. that they could take back uh, to you know their life outside the hospital sure. and hopefully have an impact. So at that level of interaction, we would hope to have better uh, environmental and public health outcomes. And when we integrate that into ongoing changes we're having in the community. So, for example, patients in some of our hospitals that otherwise are in, in food deserts, like Richmond, California, Kaiser and other hospitals have set up uh, farmer's markets in the hospital. Amazing. So it's not just you're in the hospital, you begin to be in a community that, in that sense, provides the only good locally sourced organic produce. And this has been a very successful program, and we hope addresses those larger outside-of-the-hospital programs. But, you know, it gets back, I think, a, a lot as well to where we're going with this Healthier Hospitals initiative, that it's not hospitals in isolation. In many right. communities, particularly what's going on in our country these days with the budget shortfalls, hospitals in many ways either are or have the capacity to be a leading edge of economic and social development. A lot of people go there, you know, it has a big impact on, on, on the economy. Mm-hmm. And I was just at a meeting with California Endowment and other people actually addressing these issues. Uh, how do we utilize that base in a community to actually not just be looking at treating patients who come in with illness, but actually being a linchpin of community development on all of these levels, environmental health, et cetera, providing the food. So the hospital gets involved with actually creating a healthier community that then ultimately will have less need to be hospitalized, if you would track it that way. Right. And we begin to shift and reduce uh, health costs overall. You know, right. Don Berwick, who used to be the head of Medicaid, uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, came to our Clean Med Conference in Boston a few months ago, and he's a person who's always been involved in there's, there's individual patient care, there's community care, and there's costs as being this important triad of how do we bring down health costs right. and provide quality. And he said, you know, basically act like his, you know, eyes, eyelids, you know, sh- just snapped open overseeing all of these healthcare executives and, you know, people working to transform their systems as being such an integral role in making this type of transformation. So we're really at the beginning of that, and right. I hope that you know we at PSR and our our colleagues could uh, really utilize these um, you know systems that we work in to really make a, a major difference beyond the individual efforts or the individual patient interactions. This would, in that sense, have much more bang for the, uh, for the buck in terms of creating healthier communities. Thank you so much, Bob. We've got to cut it off there. Um, but I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This was really interesting, and I'm definitely going to be following up with Lucia. This right. is a, an aspect of, you know, of national economy and, and sort of overall health issues that I think is really fascinating and, and underreported, in my opinion. So yep. once again, my, my, my thanks for being on the show, and we'll send you a link. And um, folks, this has been uh, Dr. Robert Gould from Physicians for Social Responsibility, and we'll see you next week with another fantastic episode of What Doesn't Kill You. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.